0: We have now released issue 3 of the New Thinking Aloud magazine. Download it for free at newthinkingaloud.org. New Thinking Aloud is a non-profit endeavor. Your contributions to the New Thinking Aloud Foundation make a meaningful difference in our ability to produce new videos. Thinking Aloud Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. I'm here in Las Vegas today at the studios created for us at Bigelow Aerospace. We're going to explore some of the problems inherent in mediumship research, and I'm with Stephen Browdy, who's been a guest on New Thinking Aloud many times. He is a past president of the Parapsychological Association. He is author of many books, including The Gold Leaf Lady and Crimes of Reason. He is also the recipient of the Myers Award from the Society for Psychical Research in England for his work exploring mediumship and the afterlife, or a possible afterlife. Welcome, Steve.
1: Thank you. It's good to be with you again.
0: It's a pleasure to be with you after so many years and to be back in Las Vegas and, and to have this wonderful studio. Fabulous. You were just telling me about the case of a medium in Buenos Aires, Argentina, who you began working with, if I recall correctly, in 2015. Correct. An interesting case because you impose all sorts of conditions on uh, this medium, and it was successful in table
1: tilting. Well, unlike most of the mediums I've investigated and that have been investigated, this person, Ariel Farias, was a regular guy Uh, It's not a professional psychic. He was a family man. He had a regular day gig. He discovered more or less by accident that he had the ability to make a table rise under his fingers. There had been a sitter group at the Parapsychological Institute in Buenos Aires, and by a kind of process of elimination, they found that the table would move only when Ariel was present. The important thing about Ariel is that no matter what we asked him to do, he would do it. He had no axe to grind for any particular parapsychological or philosophical or religious position. He was just curious to find out what he was able to do. Um, the investigators there in Buenos Aires uh placed a table on a scale, placed Ariel on a scale. They hooked him up to EEGs. He worked in bright light. And we often photographed him from many angles at the same time, sometimes as many as f- four or five angles, so you could see exactly what was going on. There are cameras under the table, cameras above him, cameras to the side of him. And we have some very good video of Ariel just placing his hands lightly on the table and the table rising underneath. And what's impressive to me about this is that our, first of all, Ariel's hands were not sticky. I think we need to make that clear. Uh, of course, we checked that. What was curious was that his hands got cold during the process. He felt as if, at least he said, he felt as if he was merging with the table when he placed his fingers on the table. And they were placed just lightly on it. Mm-hmm. and uh, Pointing down.
0: like you're Pointing
1: down, yes. And the table would rise under it. It was just refreshing to work with him after my experience with many other mediums who uh, rebelled against one kind of control or another, would work only under dim light or darkness. And I was finally happy to end my investigations of uh, mediumship, which is, they're pretty much done, uh, with the case that was as encouraging as this one. R.L. was just a regular guy
0: why do you call
1: him a medium? Well, why would you call any of the mediums mediums? I mean, he he didn't know why he was doing this, how he was doing this. He was open to a mediumistic interpretation of what was going on. Many of the people there who were originally in the uh, sitter group from which Ariel was uh, extracted, they thought they were uh, channeling spirit when they got results. Ariel didn't know. He didn't, I I should say, he is a a classic poltergeist agent, kind of. Um, He experienced his first phenomena when he was around 10 or 11, and his father died unexpectedly, and things would shatter and fly around. And even to this day, if he gets agitated, things will fly off shelves but he doesn't have any particular axe to grind about what the proper interpretation of uh, these happenings are. Yeah,
0: Normally I would think of a medium as somebody who professes to communicate with departed
1: spirits. Well, he doesn't profess one way or the other, uh, but he resembles, in his phenomena at least, uh, classic cases of uh, physical mediumship.
0: Somebody might refer to him as a psychokinesis agent
1: yes that that would be my inclination Mm -hmm. um but you could say much the same about uh all the famous mediums from dd hume on
0: dd hume was an out and out spiritualist
1: yes but that doesn't mean he was correct in his beliefs yeah so um Ariel didn't have firm beliefs. Many of the uh, major figures in the history of physical mediumship did have firm beliefs about the nature of what they were doing. As far as, uh, take another famous case, Eusepia Palladino is concerned. I don't think Eusepia had any particular, uh, much less well-worked-out beliefs about uh, the the kind of causation that was being demonstrated in her phenomena she knew what kinds of conditions were conducive to the phenomena she liked to have a cabinet behind her a curtain drawn across uh, a corner for example but she didn't have uh, clearly articulated beliefs about what was going on we have an interview
0: on our uh, archives with uh, the late carlos alvarado yeah carlos alvarado Uh, about Eusepia Palladino. He went into some depth about her uh, psychokinetic abilities, which he thought were absolutely genuine. and, And yet he pointed out there were times when it was very apparent that she was engaging in some sort of, I guess you'd call it subconscious fraud or subterfuge because she was in a trance state at the time.
1: Well, she said she would cheat if given the chance. I mean, so God bless her. She was at least upfront about it. Yeah. Um, and the best researchers, and ironically, that's one of the reasons this case is so good. Eusepia would cheat. People knew she would cheat if given the chance. So they knew what kinds of precautions to take with her. And the best Evidence is obtained with the best evidence from Eusepia's case comes from investigations by people who were really experts at this, the so-called fraud squad from the Society for Psychical Research. They were—all the people involved had exposed hundreds of fraudulent mediums. Uh, They were professionals at this. One was an actual magician. The others knew a lot of magic and they knew what kinds of conditions to impose. Mm-hmm. Uh, the phenomena occurred under bright light. Well, actually, the the best phenomena in Eusapia's case come from a series of sittings in Naples in 1908. And the three investigators, Fielding, Bagley, and Carrington, um, conducted 11 seances with her. There was a stenographer in the corner taking down whatever the investigators would report about what was going on. So th- there were no video cameras at the time. This was about as cinematic as a report could be. So the investigators would say, for example, uh, bright light, uh, I'm holding Eusapia's left hand and controlling her left leg. Another would report, I'm holding Eusapia's right hand and controlling her right leg. The third would say, I'm sitting in Eusapia's lap and then they'd report table levitation at a distance, table levitation at a distance. Mm-hmm. Uh, when the seance was over, uh, Eusepia would take off all her clothes, which she apparently was very happy to do, and they could confirm that she wasn't concealing any device on her body. Mm-hmm. And this was the kind of condition under which the phenomena were reported.
0: As I recall uh, Pierre Curie, the Nobel laureate uh, discoverer of radium, uh, attended seances with uh, USAP, I think in Paris, if, if I'm correct, and, and witnessed a table that was some distance from the medium uh, rising up in the air and moving around the room.
1: There are many good reports. Uh, what makes the 1908 Naples sittings particularly important is that um, the folks from the SPR who dispatched the fraud squad to Naples were hoping to debunk Eusepia once and for all. Mm -hmm. So they sent their very best people, uh, the people who were most likely to detect a trick if there was one. And they were precisely the people who uh, endorsed it after all. And what's interesting about the report from the Naples sittings is that at the end of every session, the investigators would write down their uh, feelings and impressions of what had occurred. And it's clear they were going through a kind of cognitive crisis. Uh, They were presented with phenomena they expected to find cheating, and instead they found something they couldn't debunk. And they struggled with it and gradually and grudgingly came to believe the phenomena were genuine. Now,
0: my recollection is that when Pierre Curie reported the table rising around the room, his wife Marie, Curie said, well, it's not scientific until we can reproduce it in the laboratory.
1: Where have I heard that before?
0: (laughs) Yeah, it seems that you had some debates with Ed May, uh, the physicist, a prominent parapsychologist who raised a similar argument. And as I recall, you told that May, no, you have to look very carefully at the actual conditions of uh, a lot of that work in the late 19th, early 20th century before you dismiss
1: it. So many phenomena occur in real life settings and can't be studied in formal, much less laboratory settings. If you want to study a tennis player's ability to return serves, you have to study the tennis player's performance in an actual match when opponents are trying their hardest to win. If you want to study a man's ability to have a penile erection, you can't just say, let's see an erection. What I was thinking of was C.E.M. Hansel's challenge. say, If somebody uh, really has telepathic abilities, we can determine that by just having him tell me what I'm thinking. And uh, I'm sorry that the interlocutor who was talking to Hansel for that video didn't challenge him then and there to produce an erection. I'm I'm sure he would have protested if we inferred from his inability to do so that he just couldn't get it up. It didn't
0: mean he was impotent. Right. (laughs) Well, uh, in the history of mediumship, I think many researchers would agree there was a high proportion of uh, fraud. Yes. I I don't know what the exact proportion is. Their claims vary, but uh, I, I'm sure skeptics would say it was all fraud.
1: I think there are some extremely strong counterexamples. Uh, one of my favorites is from the mediumship of D.D. D. Hume. Mm-hmm. One of Hume's reported phenomena was to make an accordion play either held at the end away from the keys or allegedly while floating around the room untouched. Hume thought the power, as he called it, was strongest underneath the seance table. Now, admittedly, that sounds a little suspicious, Uh, but his investigator, William Crooks, was a smart guy and figured, if this is what Hume believes, let's not force him too far out of his comfort zone. Mm -hmm. So here's what he did. First of all, he bought a new accordion, so no one could say it was a prop that Hume had rigged in advance. Second, he went to Hume's apartment, watched him change clothes so he could determine that Hume wasn't concealing some device on his body that would make the accordion play, although I have to say this was 1871. It's not clear what kind of small contrivance could have done that. Then he brought Hume to his house where he had built a cage made out of wire and wood that just fit under his dining room table. There was room for Hume to get his hand Into the cage to hold the accordion at the end away from the keys. Not enough room for him to get his hand all the way in to manipulate the accordion. There were nine observers from the Royal Society present, two stationed on either side of him to make sure that Hume wasn't taking his feet out of his boots. Another observer was stationed under the table with a lamp. Under those conditions, the accordion moved in and out, the keys were depressed, sounds came out of the accordion. Then Crooks asked Hume to take his hand out of the cage, put both hands on the table, and he ran an electric current through the cage, and the accordion was still seen to flop around and uh, make sounds. Now, I personally think this is one of the most powerful pieces of evidence in the history of parapsychology. Nobody, not even the late, great, amazing Randy, ever tried to duplicate that phenomenon under anything like the conditions uh, under which Hume succeeded, or under any other conditions, as far as I know. And I think that needs to be taken very seriously. There are some things that are extraordinary that don't happen often. You can't make happen on demand. And we seem to have the occasional superstar in par- parapsychology.
0: Well, let's talk about the case of Kai Mirga, the uh, German Medium. You and I did an interview about him many years ago, and you showed we included, if I recall correctly, a video you provided in in the uh, video showing a, a table lifting off. I think at least one corner of it lifted off the ground in in that. And and as I remember, you felt very strongly this was an authentic uh, example of table levitation.
1: I thought we had some good table levitations with Kai for a long time, for several reasons. One was that uh, the table moved up very slowly and it felt buoyant. It didn't feel as if someone was pushing it. Um, In some sittings I had with Kai in 2015, the table was aloft by for at least 15 or 20 seconds, swaying back and forth to the rhythm of the music that was being played on uh, the music box. It didn't seem to me that Kai could have been producing that on his own. I don't remember exactly which uh, clip I showed you however many years ago that was.
0: I will link to it so in case our viewers are interested and they are able to get the hot link in the in the video in the good. upper right hand corner good of, of the screen they can go right to that video
1: good uh there was one video that i thought was impressive i probably didn't give you that one because uh the film rights to it were controlled by robert Narholtz, my videographer um but you may have we sh- may have shown still photos taken from that um, I thought that was a good table levitation. More recently, Michael Nom, and you should interview Michael about this, uh, has shown conclusively that for a lot of table levitations that look good, Kai was actually uh, lifting it with his thumb and using his leg uh, as a fulcrum against the table leg, and he had a fake thumb that was on the table. We completely missed the fake thumb. And um, I think that cast out on a lot of the table levitations that Kai produced. Um, I'm still not sure about the table swaying back and forth for uh, 15 to 20 seconds. That one felt really good. But Michael says he can do that. I'd like him to do that uh, in my presence. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in fact, when Kai was making the table sway back and forth. Robert Narholz, at the opposite end of the table, was applying pressure downward, trying to prevent uh, the table from going up. And it still continued on its motion. Yeah. And I'm not sure that Kai could have done that just with his thumbs, but Michael thinks he could have. Mm-hmm. So, the I don't know what to say now about Kai. I had thought that He was another mixed medium, not of Eusapia's caliber, but uh, someone who had some modest ability, not controllable on demand, and uh, unscrupulous enough to make a pretty good living out of it. Still, there are some phenomena that I don't think Michael has explained away. Um, In some early sittings with Kai, I had four-limb control of him. I was controlling I was virtually draped all over his body and objects were moving at the other end of the room now michael says he could have had some sort of s- stick or something like mm-hmm. that but i'm sure i would have uh, been aware of it holding his arms sitting on his legs uh and there was no such thing that i noticed in the séance where the table was uh swaying a bell rang behind me that was hanging on the, uh, from the ceiling. There was a, a drum well behind Kai out of his reach that um, from which a, a very loud bang was emitted. And I don't see how Kai could have uh, touched that without those of us controlling him uh, from on both sides we would have noticed him turning around. And, and
0: there were no other people in the room who who might have been an accomplice?
1: Uh, well, there were several people around the table. One was Kai's wife, mm-hmm. but she was next to me, and I would have noticed if she was not there. We were.
0: So uh, there's also the question of ectoplasm, if I remember, uh, associated <laughs> with Kai's mediumship.
1: Uh, yes, uh, Kai would produce copious amounts of stuff coming out of his mouth, uh, falling on the floor, apparently moving. I saw what looked like a stalk emerge from the mass, a little hand at the top of it going back and forth, sort of like a cobra head. I don't know what that was about. Uh, but when we tested Kai in Austria in 2013, uh, we had really good controls. I did a strip search of Kai a thorough strip search uh, endorsed by a physician who was present i didn't do a full cavity search that's uh not in my pay grade and so i can't rule out various other possibilities kai really? still managed to um pull a lot of stuff out of his mouth so there were two hypotheses one is that he had previously swallowed some stuff and regurgitated it. What counts against that is that Kai drank a lot of black tea before the sitting. He had pizza shortly before the sitting. You would think that there would be some remnants of that uh, in what was brought up if you were regurgitating it, and there was no such thing. The other hypothesis is the rectal hypothesis, and as outlandish as that might sound, there was a Hungarian medium at one point whose specialty was concealing things in his rectum and producing it in the context of a seance. Mm-hmm. Now, Kai, who had done, filmed some uh, documentaries about the drug scene in Frankfurt, uh, knew all too well about uh, how drug mules store things up their rectum. So I don't know uh, whether... The rectal hypothesis has any merit or not in this case. But my feeling about the case of Kai Muga now is that it's just not worth the trouble. Mm -hmm. I mean, he may be a mixed medium. I'm inclined to think that some of the phenomena are genuine. But it's just too damn much trouble. I mean, Ariel Farias was a pleasure to work with. Mm -hmm. Uh, Kai, not so much. I like Kai personally, but I don't want to be his investigator anymore.
0: With regard to the ectoplasm, once it's come out of his mouth or wherever, did it vanish or was it available for further study?
1: Kai claims it was reabsorbed. He also promised to show us it being reabsorbed. We never got to see that. Um, What happened in Austria, for example, was that uh, those of us on either side of the curtain, closest to Kai, pulled back the curtain the phenomena all occurred behind the curtain so that when Kai closed it, then the ectoplasm disappeared and we never saw where it went. So did he re-swallow it? Did he um, shove it up his ass again? We We have no idea.
0: But the intriguing one is the hand you saw—the miniature hand that moved around.
1: Yeah, it intrigued me. It,
0: it, it appeared out of a, what an amorphous cloud of some sort.
1: Not a cloud. It was a. Uh, it, it seemed to be a pulsating mass of stuff on the floor. One thing that made me suspicious was that Kai said we shouldn't try to touch it because it might harm the medium. That seems like BS to me because it was falling on the floor so it touched the floor and didn't hurt the medium uh so there are lots of things that just didn't make sense with kai Mm -hmm. am i correct in
0: recalling that he was caught with some sort of halloween-like substance
1: oh yes well we know that kai cheated uh not only (laughs) two things first of all he was making a light move around um and it turned out he was doing this by means of a device similar to what's known as the delight flight, as I recall. Um, it's a magician's trick, and it 's controlled by the thumb and Thanks to a series of photographs that uh, were innocently taken of this, you could see Kai 's thumb moving in just the direction that the light is moving. Mm. I can't recall at the moment where the Kai copped to this finally, but uh, absolutely clear that this was a case of uh fraudulent phenomena. Uh Kai also oh, Kai also produced um some glowing green ectoplasmic stuff, which it turns out he had bought large samples of uh a kilogram of uh Halloween cobweb. Mm. He said, just to test the skeptical hypothesis, um, you don't need a kilogram of uh, this fluffy uh, Halloween cobweb to do that. Uh, So it's just another thing that... uh, makes Kai far less than an ideal subject. I know a lot of uh, mediums though throughout the, the
0: history of mediumship have uh, demonstrated ectoplasm and uh, it seems to me that some of those cases look fairly authentic or at least have not been
1: explained away. Yes, and I think there's still some good cases. Uh, there's the Kathleen Gallagher case mm-hmm. investigated by W.J. Crawford. She made uh, as photographs documented, uh, a table levitate by exuding ectoplasm from some orifice or other, could have been her mouth, could have been her v- vagina. Uh, it would go onto the floor and prop up a table as if it was a cantilever. And that appealed to W.J. Crawford because he was an engineer, a mechanical engineer. And so he wondered how she managed to make the table go up and the photographs seemed to show that it worked like a cantilever. Now, here's where parapsychologists missed an interesting opportunity. On the continent, there was another medium, Eva C. Mm-hmm. Um, she produced ectoplasm, but her ectoplasm didn't behave, behave mechanically. It behaved biologically. It would ooze out of her and then form a little hand with fingers that waved. And she was being investigated by physiologists who would have found that more, uh, I don't know, agreeable is the word. Compatible Uh, with their worldview. Yes. Uh, So here's the opportunity missed. If only Crawford had investigated Eva C., and Shrank Nautzing and Gehli had investigated Kathleen Gallagher, we could have tested experimenter effects yeah. in the investigation of
0: uh, ectoplasmic phenomena. Of course, experimenter effects were not on the mind of investigators in that era. Right, of course. Yeah. But that's one of those
1: opportunities missed.
0: And, and then subsequently, mediumship research went through, a, uh, to my knowledge, a period of decline.
1: Well, it did. Uh, after uh, Didi Hume, uh, the phenomena got less and less dramatic. Eusapia's phenomena were not as impressive as Didi Hume's several decades prior. D.D. Um, Hume could make an accordion play melodies on request, and according to observers, they played beautiful melodies, elegantly performed. Hume Now, Hume had some musical ability. Uh, He did play a a keyboard, I believe. And Eusepia had no musical ability, but she made sounds emanate from instruments at a distance. Uh, Hume produced elegantly fashioned materialized hands that ended at the wrist. Um, People could shake hands with them, poke holes through them, the holes would uh, heal up. The hands would carry objects around, and then they would just dissolve in sitters' grasp. Eusepia didn't produce hands, but she did produce some kinds of knobby objects uh, that were kind of proto-hands. And then after Eusepia, you have, for example, Rudy Schneider, who uh, produced just very small object movements at a distance. Now, was this a kind of cognitive rebellion against the the enormity of the implications of being able to affect the world in this way. I mean, if what Hume did is something that other human beings can do, God knows what kind of havoc we might be wreaking in the world by thought alone. And so physical mediumship went into a kind of uh, decline. I am inclined to think that people just freaked out over uh, physical phenomena.
0: Understandably so. Even conventional psychokinesis is still very controversial among parapsychologists.
1: Absolutely. They don't want to accept it. And the implications are clear. If you can make a matchstick move a millimeter by thought alone, it's a very small step conceptually f- from that to making somebody drop dead by thought alone. Yeah. So the existence of any PK in the world makes us have to come to grips with uh a kind of magical worldview that most of us associate, usually condescendingly, only with so-called primitive, uh, undeveloped,
0: you know. But now, more recently, they think there's been something of a resurgence, and I'm sure you're familiar with the Skull group. Yes. How do you evaluate
1: that? It's a troublesome case. I mean, the phenomenon occurred in the darkness. I personally did not find the case that impressive, uh, I know there are people who who think highly of it, I just can't be one of them
0: okay fair fair enough i've actually had the chance to interview Robin Foy, the organizer yes. of the group now deceased uh and and just um for the benefit of viewers who are curious about that case i'll I'll link to it Good. so that people can know more about it yeah uh three. Prominent members of the Society for Psychical Research issued a report, which was very favorable.
1: And others uh, issued reports that were, yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's just not a clear case. Uh, My regret about it is that the phenomena are not as dramatic as uh, those of Hume or Palladino. Mm -hmm. um, And they occurred in darkness. Yeah. So right from the start, the case is setting you up for phenomena that are going to be harder to uh, confirm than uh, for th- than the phenomena of the great physical mediums like Hume and Palladino and Eva C. In any case, without going further
0: into the details of that case, it's fair to say that your primary interest in mediumship, as I understand it, is physical mediumship and that
1: can be viewed as an example of psychokinesis yes, and I got into it for purely practical reasons i was a, I was a philosophy professor. We had no provisions in our department budget for paranormal case investigations, so i didn 't want to do poltergeist investigations or hauntings because the phenomena are too sporadic. Uh, parapsychologists often chase them away, and um you need to spend a lot of time just waiting for something to happen. Uh, I like the idea of documenting phenomena that were quite reliable and photographable. And that's why I like the case of Katie Engelhart, the gold leaf lady. Yes. Uh, I mean, Katie's phenomena occurred right before your very eyes. Uh, she had no control over it, unfortunately. Uh, but the phenomena, the golden foil would appear on her skin instantaneously and spontaneously. You could scrape it off. Uh, you could examine her beforehand, and then suddenly the, the gold foil would appear. There.
0: In fact, we had done an interview on that case, which included, if I remember correctly, a video of the foil uh, as it appeared. I'm going to link to that video as well for uh, viewers who are curious. Uh, it's an
1: excellent case. It's my personal favorite. And it's one I still don't know what to say about, except that I believe the phenomena were absolutely genuine. It's an interesting case on several levels. Katie was also a medium. Um, When she went into a mediumistic trance, I mean, Katie, first of all, uh, had only a first grade education. Uh, She was functionally illiterate. She could write her name. She knew the letters of the alphabet, but she couldn't write sentences. When she was in a mediumistic trance, she would write out quatrains in medieval French, ostensibly from Nostradamus. I don't know what was going on there. Uh, I haven't come to grips with that aspect of the case. Mm -hmm. Katie was a good all round psychic. And again, not somebody with an ax to grind. She didn't want to be uh, a professional psychic. Um, She worked as a domestic, as I recall she worked with the police to solve crimes. In one case, uh, police showed her a photograph of the victim, and her face and arms broke out in scratches. And it turns out, although Katie didn't know this, the victim had been fleeing from her uh, attacker, and she ran through some uh, bushes and scratched her face and her arms. Oh. And uh, since you're going to pr- provide a link to the ca- the video we did of the yes. Gold Leaf Lady. I won't tell you about the uh, jewelry heist that she solved. <laughs> I don't think we discussed it in that video. Oh, well, let's see if I can do it from memory. There was uh, a jewelry heist in Johns Island near Vero Beach where a lot of uh, wealthy people's homes are, and a large quantity of jewelry was stolen the local head of security, whom I interviewed, had been unable to solve the case. Uh, But he heard about Katie and he figured, why not give it a shot? So here's what he did. He took Katie on a drive around John's Island, uh, just going past the homes, always taking his foot off the gas pedal so as not to, so he would coast through the, past the homes, not to give anything away. Katie identified the correct home. She described uh, the decor of the house. She described it correctly. She described three people. The police had thought there were only two, but apparently there was another one driving a getaway car. And uh, at first, she gave so many details that the head of security began to regard her as a possible suspect. But the clues she provided allowed him to solve the crime and recover uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars of uh, jewelry. Now, there's an epilogue to this. As they were driving away, uh, Katie started to feel nauseous and asked the driver to pull over. And she said she smelled marijuana and nobody else in the car, uh, the head of security or his associates, uh, smelled anything. And she said, well, two weeks from now, um, there'll be a lot of marijuana here. The head of security jotted that down, and two weeks later, almost to the hour, uh, 25 bales of pot washed ashore uh, right where they had been sitting. Now, it's not uncommon in Florida for pot to wash ashore, apparently. Uh, Still, it was an intriguing uh, coincidence. Or an example of precognition, yes, right.
0: which, which raises enormous philosophical problems. Absolutely. So, Katie's a bundle of challenges. Now, I think it's worth mentioning, since we're talking about mediumship, that, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think your primary focus is to view mediumship, like Katie's or uh, uh, Ariel's, as examples of psychokinesis, or extrasensory perception, or what we might call living agent psi, as opposed to uh, the action
1: of spirits? I'm not ruling out the action of spirits. Uh, I'm agnostic about the survival hypothesis still. I struggle with that. I'm inclined to say I've favored the pK. hypothesis, but only because we have evidence for PK from uh, various other sources, not in a spiritistic context at all. And in some cases, you might be able to link the phenomena to quite mundane things going on in a person's life. So for example, in Katie's case, uh, she started out as kind of a poltergeist agent. Um, None of her psychic abilities emerged until she married her second husband. And by all accounts, it was a a difficult relationship. And in the early years of their marriage, poltergeist-like things were happening. Objects would move around, be turned upside down, appear and disappear. And one day a carving set appeared, apparently out of nowhere. And her husband, Tom, said, Well, what good is it if it isn't money? And then two days later, Katie's body started to break out in this golden colored foil. Now, if you want my pop psychological analysis of this, it would be that symbolically the golden foil satisfies Katie's husband's demand for something valuable, but it's not legitimately valuable and doesn't uh, raise the specter of Katie being the goose that laid the golden egg, which would be an enormous personal responsibility. And besides, I think it's a way of Katie showing her rage against her husband in a a safe way. The husband wanted something valuable. Katie was giving him fool's gold. It was brass. It was brass, right.
0: Still, from a scientific point of view, to exude brass from human
1: skins. Well, time out there. uh, the, The challenge here is whether she was emitting it, like sweating it from her skin, or whether she was materializing it on her skin, or apporting it from some other location and putting it on her skin. We never resolved that. But the psychodynamics of the case seem pretty clear. Uh, It seems like Katie was giving her husband the psychic finger.
0: Well, I know from our previous interview, it's worth linking to. Yet again, we've talked about the case of Ted Sirios uh, and thoughtography and his work with Jewel Eisenbud, a psychoanalyst. Uh, I think influenced you quite a bit to try and develop a psychoanalytic uh, way of interpreting uh, why some
1: of these events occur the way they do. Well, whether it's psychoanalytic or just depth psychological, uh, uh, yes, I would look for something about the person and the person's uh, s- psychological state to see if there are any clues there. And s- occasionally you get a gift like Katie's case, which makes it uh, almost painfully clear. Another case would be uh, Eleanor Zugun, which I think we've done a, a show about too. Sure. Uh, of the Romanian girl in the early part of uh, the 20th century, she was. A peasant girl. She was walking to her grandmother's house. Found some money on the side of the road. Used it to buy some candy, which she ate on the way to her grandmother's house. When she got to her grandmother's house, uh, she uh, her grandmother was ostensibly a witch. Uh, She told her grandmother what she had done, and the grandmother said, "Well, that was the devil's money you found, and now that you ate the candy that you bought with it, the devil is inside you," and. The next day, Eleanor started receiving apparent attacks from uh, the devil. Uh, objects would fly around, fly at her, and her body would break out and bite and scratch marks, ostensibly caused by the devil. And this was an interesting case because uh, saliva would sometimes occur with the bite marks, mm-hmm. and uh, its biological content was different from Eleanor's own. And there was a movie made of Eleanor at the time, where you see the phenomena occurring, and it's clear that nobody Eleanor wasn't self-inflicting. Well,
0: it suggests that the role of suggestion
1: might have had a real impact. So, if Eleanor can believe the devil was inside her, um, I mean, eventually the phenomena went away. Uh, by the way, this has a happy ending. When Eleanor began to get her periods, the phenomena disappeared and she settled down to the peaceful life of a hairdresser in Bucharest. <laughs> well, I guess uh, that's a lot better than
0: being plagued by a yeah. demon. But there is often, a, a, certainly in folklore, a link between uh, mediumship and, and demonic activity. In fact, you, you get you know biblical warnings about this sort of thing.
1: Well, and that's exactly the kind of thing that makes some people so nervous about PK. Uh, Because if we take PK, even mundane PK, seriously, do we have to take seriously all these other contexts in which PK-like stuff, but on a much grander scale, is occurring? And your response, I think, would be yes. Yes, I think we have to take it seriously. Yes. Yes, we might have to take seriously the possibility of hexing the evil eye, uh... And this could also be a way in which people uh, attack themselves. You know, we, people can um, make themselves uh, heal psychosomatically. They can make themselves ill psychosomatically. Uh, and I think we we may have talked about this too. Uh, this might account for uh, certain kinds of misfortunes or good fortune of people. I've, I've often maintained that if we want to study the kind of context in which PK phenomena occur, it helps to look at unlucky people, unusually unlucky people. Do you want me to go through this
0: again? Well, I do recall a previous discussion on this point, and I believe that uh, Eisenbud, who I think was something of a mentor to you, uh, wrote about it in some depth.
1: He he, was an inspiration to me, absolutely. And we may or may not have talked about the difference between a shlemiel and a shlemazel. (laughs) Is it worth… Yeah. There are things that are
0: definitely worth repeating, and that's one of them.
1: All right, well, there's this Yiddish distinction between a shlemiel and a shlemazel. A shlemiel is someone who spills soup on himself, a shlemazel has it spilled on him. So the idea is that a schlamazel is an unlucky soul, someone the universe is crapping on, or someone who's just uh, being besieged by the universe at large. And they really exist. I was actually married to a schlamazel at one point, and her entire family was, in fact, a family of schlamazels. They were lightning rods for misfortune. But my favorite case, I lived next door to a couple of Schlemazels, and it seems like everything they bought was defective. Electronic equipment would fail to work right out of the box. Their cars were always in the shop, even though they had brands noted for their reliability. A brand new rocking chair broke on the sixth day of ownership with her two-year-old son on uh, sitting on it but my favorite example of their schlamazelness, if that's even a word. The wife bought what she thought was a poster-sized photograph of the Golden Gate Bridge, framed it, and put it on her living room wall. And I had to tell her, Donna, that's the Brooklyn Bridge. (laughs) So here's a woman who both Literally and figuratively bought the Brooklyn Bridge, which as younger viewers might not realize, is an old fashioned example of the sucker.
0: I have a bridge to sell you.
1: (laughs) Yes, right. Exactly. Now, how do we understand extraordinary unluckiness? Uh, Is it something that people are doing to themselves to express their uh, self-loathing? Or is it something that the mischievous philosopher next door is doing to them? You know, tracing the causal lines is very difficult, if not impossible. And that's an open question. But it's the kind of thing that makes people extremely uncomfortable to think about. Mm-hmm. And I get it. I mean, it made me nervous, too. I'm now just too jaded, I suppose.
0: But Before we close, I think it's worth repeating... The story that you told me, I think, in our very first interview, which is what got you interested in psychokinesis in the first place, a, a table levitation that you experienced, if I recall correctly, when you were a college student. Yeah,
1: boy, I'm drenched in nostalgia. It was a, I've told the story many times, so I apologize to those who've heard it. It was a slow day in Northampton, Massachusetts, A couple of friends and I wanted to do something. We'd seen the only movie in town. And so they suggested, well, let's play this game called Table Up. What they meant was let's have a seance. They knew nothing about parapsychology. They just thought this was a game that was fun when it worked. I knew nothing about parapsychology. I was busy writing a dissertation on temporal logic. And I fashioned myself in those days to be a kind of hard-nosed materialist. Not for any particularly good reason, it was just the kind of intellectual conceit I was cultivating. Well, it's been
0: a a trend in philosophy, actually, going back to uh, the
1: naturalists. So, we were both, all three of us were naive about parapsychology. We were in my house, it was broad daylight, it was my table. We sat around the table and concentrated on making the table go up, thinking to ourselves, table up, table up. And at some point, the table started to shudder and rise. Uh, it was tilting. We were standing next to the table. Uh, it was clear nobody was uh, using their legs to move the table. If one of one of us left to go to the toilet, uh, the table would still rise under our, the remaining sets of fingers. And it was clear we weren't lifting the table. We weren't applying any upward pressure. Uh, It was broad daylight. Uh, My friends were not practical jokers. Since you mentioned that one of
0: your friends got up and went to the bathroom, the table remained levitating, I gather it was for a period of time.
1: We sat around the table, placed our fingers lightly on it, and thought to ourselves, table up, table up, and sometimes said it aloud, table up, table up. After about 20 minutes, it started to rise on one end. And It would spell out answers in response to questions by means of a very clumsy code. My friends didn't know anything about the history of mediumistic research. If they had, they would have known that the usual procedure is to ask yes or no questions and to have wraps or the table tilt once for yes, twice for no, something like that. My friend's procedure was to have the table nod once for the letter A, twice for the letter B, And spell out messages. We ostensibly communicated with three entities. The first was John Wayne, who had uh, recently died. The actor. The actor, yes. Uh, The next was the mythical River Styx. So I'm inclined to think that was not a genuine communication. And the third claimed to be somebody named Horace T. Jeckham, We may have gotten the spelling botched thanks to that clumsy code. You can see why it took three hours to get three messages. And he he claimed to build the house that I was living in, this old uh, 18th century house. And I thought, well, that was cool. I ought to be able to determine if that was the case. I went down to City Hall, dug up the city records, and it turned out that the house was so old that it antedated city records. So I was never able to verify that anyone whose name was even close to that, of course, T. Jecum, had built the house. I have to say that it, the phenomena freaked me out so much that I didn't make much of an effort to pursue it further anyway. Uh, I was satisfied in my modest effort and left it where it was. But I, I had no idea what was going on. I had no idea whether spirits were involved. This was completely out of my comfort zone. I was busy writing my dissertation on temporal logic. I put it out of mind for uh, a good period of time. I knew I couldn't talk to my mentors about this uh, wisely. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I waited till I completed my dissertation. I got a job and I got tenure. And then with the ostensible safety provided by tenure, uh, I remembered what happened to me back in grad school. And I figured if I was an honest philosopher and intellectual. I needed to come to grips with this. I read books on parapsychology by well-known philosophers, decided there was something there worth sinking my teeth into, and the rest is history. I should say that, back in my old house, the table would rise even if only two of us were there. If one went to go to the other room, uh, it would continue to rise under our fingers. We were standing next to the table uh, we were clearly not lifting it with our legs, and uh, we were not atta- grabbing the table. We had our hands lightly on it. So it was impressive, uh, and I successfully put it out of mind for about seven years.
0: And and the phenomenon continued for some three hours. Three hours, yeah. And, and I gather if you're saying that the, there were three of you... Yes. Uh, the the other two would occasionally go to the toilet. Yeah. So it didn't seem to be dependent upon any one person. No, no, good point.
1: So it was just a, a mystery, a terrifying mystery to me at the time. And it, it made me uncomfortable. I was happy not to think about it when my investigation of Horace T. Jeckham Hit a dead end.
0: Yeah, you could have checked
1: uh, graveyard records or something. Yes, there's much more I could have done. And probably still could. Aha! <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh.
0: <laughs> well, this is a, an elaboration from the original story. I didn't, uh, when you first mentioned it, I think you told me you tried to pull the table back down and it wouldn't come down at one point.
1: I don't remember that, but it may have
0: been the case. Mm hmm. Well, I was much younger. People can check the original video to see if I'm correct on, on that point. Stephen, this has been a great pleasure to be with you, to be here in Las Vegas, and to uh, refresh uh, my memory of the many interviews we've done in the past. Let's do it again in ten years. <laughs> or sooner. Yeah, right. Thank you so much for being with me. Thank you. And for those of you listening or watching, thank you for being with us. You are the reason that we are here. I imagine that by now many of you already realize that, in conjunction with White Crow Books, we've just launched the New Thinking Aloud Dialogues book imprint, and our first title is, Is There Life After Death? New Thinking Aloud is a nonprofit endeavor. Your contributions to the New Thinking Aloud
1: Foundation make a meaningful difference in our ability to produce new videos.